Oh, beautiful music. Thank you for that. Good morning, everyone. Uh, you've heard the text, you know, be sure your sin will find you out. Well, be around a pastor long enough and be sure your talents will find you out and uh, the pastor will put them to good use. Uh, let's, let's start with a word of prayer and uh, we'll get into the life of Samuel. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful for another week of life and especially that we get to come here on the Sabbath day. We freely get to come and sing to you, worship you, read scripture, delve into it, Lord, and we thank you for this privilege. We know many parts in the world do not have it. Father, I pray that you would give me the right words to speak, that your spirit would touch our hearts and minds, that we would understand you better, and that we would seek to arrange our lives in such a way that you would be supreme in our lives each and every day. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So Samuel, a wonderful, wonderful story in the Bible. You know how much I love to take a story in the Bible. Uh, last week we went through, was anyone listening last week? What story did we go through last week? Joseph. Oh, good. Some of you remember. That's wonderful. And uh, today we're going to go through at least the first We'll see how far we get. I I arranged my sermon today so that I can just watch the clock and more or less end when the time comes rather than trying to finish the sermon. But hopefully we'll get through the first few chapters of the book of 1 Samuel and discuss his life and some of the lessons that we can draw out uh, from there. And so the story begins, uh, I'm just in the book of 1 Samuel, maybe before we begin the story, what time period is immediately preceding the time of 1 Samuel? The period of the judges, right? I feel like I'm hearing it, but you're, you're answering a little bit softly. Don't be afraid to speak up. Judges is correct. Uh, judges, it, it's one of those books that everyone just loves to read, right? Because it's just full of so much hope and, and, and glory. And yes, there are moments in there where God's deliverance truly is uh, shining forth in very powerful ways, but it's just interspersed with so much how do you describe it? Apostasy, degradation. I mean, it just gets worse and worse after each and every generation. And God is raising up judges. He's raising up deliverers. But somehow it still is not enough to turn the tide of the nation. And there is still so much apostasy. And it's no different to when we come to the story of Samuel. Uh, we read about this man named Elkanah. Uh, who is from the mountains of Ephraim. Now, we aren't told in the Bible, but the spirit of prophecy does tell us that he was a Levite. It's just that he lived in Ephraim. So in the land of Ephraim, remember that when the land was divided, the Levites got which portion of land? It's a trick question. They didn't, they didn't get it. Some could say they got all of it, but what they got was about 40 cities dispersed throughout the land in every single tribe. Uh, you could say that God's uh, maybe vision for it was that this would be 40 different seminaries, as it were, where people could come and learn of God and be taught of what it is that uh, he requires of them and, and so on and so forth. They could, the priests could intercede for them. And of course, they would have those yearly services where they were to come before the actual tabernacle itself. But the Lord established a beautiful system where at a time where travel was very expensive and very difficult that people could still inquire of the Lord locally. 
And he did this through the priests, at least this was his hope, and through the prophets as well. And we have uh, the story here of Hannah, who comes up and uh, let's, let's read. I mean, we know that Elkanah takes a second wife because Hannah was, uh, her womb was closed. She was not able to have children. And so year by year, they went to the house of the Lord. And this second wife would always just provoke Hannah and say, you're good for nothing. You haven't been able to have children and so on. And finally, she is out there uh, weeping uh, in Shiloh, where the temple was. And let's take it up from verse 9 of chapter 1. It says, So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat of the doorstep of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, question, as, I, as I'm reading this, I'm wondering, put away the wine from you. How long will you be? Does this sound like a man who is witnessing this phenomena for the very first time? It seems like Eli is talking out of a bit of frustration here, that he has witnessed people being drunk before and doing all kinds of who knows what around the temple, in the temple court, uh, where the sacrifices were being made. And he just assumes, oh, this is happening again. And out of frustration, he's saying, how long? Like, can you just leave, please? Take the wine away and go. She, of course, clarifies that this is not the case. And Eli is very quick to apologize, if you could call it that, or say, you know, I didn't uh, intend. This is good. May the Lord bless you as she leaves. He's saying, and give you what it is that you asked. He could tell from the conversation, this is not what I expected it to be. But it shows you a little bit also of what the nation was like around the time when, uh, when Samuel was born, and particularly what was happening around the temple of the Lord during this time. Remember that Hannah was going to give him to the Lord indefinitely, all the days of his life. So how far has Israel, the children of Israel, fallen? How far have they fallen? There is widespread apostasy. This is not only true of judges, but we even see little glimpses of it here in uh, the story. Let alone, we could say, even a, a moment of unfaithfulness in Samuel's own household when Elkanah takes a second wife because Hannah was not able to bear him children. This was, as the Spirit of Prophecy says, and I believe we would all agree, a lack of faith in God. God could have answered his prayer, answered their prayer and given them a child. And does God hear Hannah? Does he answer her prayer? So much so that she names the child what? Samuel. Does anyone know what the meaning of Samuel is? Say that again. Gift of God, okay. Also meaning heard by God. In other words, he's a direct answer. He's the gift. He is that which God heard me when I cried out. Now, if I was to ask you, let me ask just a few questions. 
How many of you have had an experience where God, where you have prayed to God earnestly and God has answered that prayer? Some of you may have stories, you know, where it was answered within a few minutes, within a few hours. I'll say within a 24 period of time, God answered your prayer very, very quickly. Raise your hands if you've had that happen. Okay, quite a few of you. How many of you have had to pray for something for years and God has answered your prayer? Okay, good, a good portion of you as well. How many of you are still praying for things and you know that God will one day answer them? Maybe not exactly how we want, but God is here. Is God a God who hears us? This is a beautiful thing. Hannah names her child as a testimony, not just of herself, but also to remind the people particularly because she is going to loan him to the Lord, and we'll get to that uh, very, very soon, this, this word loan, uh, that he is to be a testimony that God still hears his children when they cry out to him. He is not so far away that he is sort of disconcerned, not concerned, uh, what we say, disingenuous, that he doesn't care about what we're going through. It is quite the opposite. And Hannah here names her child Samuel as that testimony, God hears. This is a very important part in this story as we come to, well, I don't want to give it away yet. But remember that, that Samuel means that God hears. He, she was heard by God, in case you haven't got already. Now, let's go to this, to this word where she uh, obviously uh, has the child Samuel, and she doesn't go back to Shiloh, until, you know, her husband goes every single year. Being a priest, he did this, and he, she, she was invited, and Samuel was invited, but she says, I'm not going to go because I made a promise to God that I'm going to give him to the Lord perpetually, so I'm going to wait until he's weaned, okay? She's probably waiting until he can feed himself, clothe himself, wash himself, be potty trained. I mean, he would have been young still, but my guess is he was probably around the age of five, I'll go between four and six, you know, to, to add some leeway. The Bible is uh, particular to announce also that when the child comes, uh, I'm trying to remember now here where the, uh, where the verse is, and it's, it's skipping me. Oh, no, here it is, verse 24. The last sentence of verse 24, it says, and the child was young. I mean, there, there is an emphasis there that this, a child is already young. If you have to emphasize that the child was young, this is a young, young child. You get what I'm saying? Uh, a child is already someone who is very young. So Samuel is being careful to say he was very, very, very small. And you can imagine how, men, how many prayers Hannah prayed to have Samuel, how many prayers she must have prayed after she had Samuel, knowing that she was going to turn him over to the priesthood, to Eli, to complete her vow to God, and knowing how much apostasy existed. And we're going to get into a little bit, uh, a little bit of that in chapter 2. But notice she says, when he finally is weaned, she goes down and she gives him to Eli, and she says, I was that woman, you remember a few years ago, that you thought was drunk, but I wasn't drunk. God has fulfilled his promise to me. I'm here to make good on my promise to God. Here is the child. And it says she lent him to the Lord or gave him on loan. And I, the reason I love that is because it says she didn't sell him to the Lord. Not like we are pieces of furniture or something like that, that we need to be sold to God or not to God. And it's also emphasizing the fact that he was not rejected by his parents. 
He was not abandoned. He didn't end up at the temple because his parents didn't love him. Samuel grew up in a home where he knew his father and mother loved him. They cared for him, but he was to be on loan to the Lord. Now, as you read through the story of Samuel, you will see, especially towards the end, he goes around in circuits. He establishes the school of the prophets. We're not going to get into that uh, today. Uh, But he's always returning to Ramah, which is in Ephraim, which is where his hometown is, where his family is. So even though he was loaned out to the Lord, it's not as though he cut off all ties to his family and said, I'm never going to see you again. Just keep that uh, in mind when it comes down to the fact that we also ought to live lives that are loaned to the Lord. Now let's go to chapter 2. Chapter 1 ends chapter 2. For the sake of time, I don't want to spend too much on on Hannah's prayer, but it's a beautiful prayer. And part of what I love about it is she not only praises God for answering her prayer, but she also starts looking forward to God's promises that he's going to fulfill through the Messiah as well. And some of the things that she mentions in her prayer could definitely apply to probably around the time of David and Solomon, but some of the things in her prayer are definitely looking forward to that messianic king who is coming. And I find that beautiful, the way that she is able to tie those things in to the fact that her prayer has been answered and how wonderful God is. But immediately after her prayer, we have this... uh, I don't know how to describe it, this description, (laughs) this description of the sons of Eli, and it simply begins in verse 12. It says, now, kind of like, pay attention and listen, now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. They did what? Not, not, who are, who are the sons of Eli? Who is Eli? The high priest His sons don't know the Lord. Is your attention already as you're reading the text like this is extremely odd. If anyone should know the Lord, it should be the high priest and his sons. I mean, they minister in the sanctuary. This is their job to know the Lord and to inquire of the Lord and to help the people and teach the people who the Lord is. And Samuel here is very clear to tell us they're very corrupt They don't know God at all. And yet they are ministering. Now, I'm not going to read through everything here, but I did take a few notes here of some of the things which Hophni and Phinehas were doing. And I'm sure Samuel here in his book is not trying to provide a comprehensive list. He's probably picking some of the worst things that they did and making sure to note that just so that everyone has a description. So one of the things that they uh, would do is, if you read in Leviticus you will see that as the priests ministered in the sanctuary, they were allotted a portion of the sacrifice for themselves and for their families so that they may subsist, as it were, of the service that they give to the Lord. Otherwise, this service, which was free of charge, um, how would they eat? How would they survive? Uh, And God allotted certain portions, and it's specifically named what the priest could take and what the priest was not to take. But Hophni and Phinehas took whatever they wanted. It wasn't about what rightly belonged to them. It was, we're going to take as much as we want. So they would take more meat than, was, than what was acceptable. Not only that, it gets worse. I feel like Samuel is, is trying to really build this up. He says, they would take the meat before the offering was burned. 
So they wanted raw meat rather than cooked meat. Now, we could speculate as to reasons. I'm under the impression that likely it was so that they could cook it later because how much can you eat in one sitting? And when you cook it, it doesn't last as long. It will dry out. It will, I don't know. Or perhaps the other reason we could say is they also wanted to sell it at the market. Maybe they had someone with them in their back pocket and they're like, hey, we have this meat, go take it to the market, sell it and give us the money. So much was happening here that God, when he sent the man of God to come and talk to Eli, he uses this exact expression. He says, you have made yourselves fat. Literally fat. Now, I take this very literally because we read that when Eli died, it says he, he fell down upon hearing that the ark was taken and it says he was a heavy man. So, so obviously this was in a literal sense that they're fat, but I think in, in a more maybe, uh, I would say, analogical sense, it also meant their pockets were stuffed. They, they are getting themselves rich on the fat of the land, on the fat of the offerings by taking more than what God designed that they should take. And this was not what God had intended to do, but this is what they're doing. And worse than this, I, I want you just to imagine, well, let me say this, and then, and then I'll give you my, my uh, uh, what should I say, modern day example. Uh, not only would they ask for the, for the portion to the priest before the offering was, was burned and was cooked, but if someone said, no, 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 it has to be cooked first, they would say, um, uh, we'll take you over there to the side and rough you up a little bit and take it by force if we have to. Now give us our portion that we asked for now. Can you imagine? You're coming to the temple of God. You're wanting to do worship and give worship to God and this is what you are met with. Just, just imagine that you come to Village Church. Village Church, such a, such a wonderful church and we have such wonderful deacons that are here and they collect our offerings and they take it away. But imagine you're greeted one Sabbath as you come through, no matter what entrance, there's maybe three or four deacons at each entrance. And as they come in, they say, you know, clink, clink, <laughs> say, can you place your offering here before you even go into worship? Oh, you have a problem with that. Hey, you know, let's take him to the side and, and rough him up and take his wallet and take how much we think is appropriate and put it in the offering basket. Can you imagine being the second person in line, coming in, walking into the church, and the next person goes, clink, clink, please place your offering here. Oh, you don't want to? Look at what we're doing to him. How many of you would say, that's my dream church. I can't wait to come next week. This is what's happening at the door of the tabernacle as people are coming to worship God. Not to mention all the sleeping around that they did, which is mentioned as well. So much that verse 17 says, and rightly so, it's not a surprise to us as we read what is taking place, that men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Abhorred is, is, you know, I feel like it's even stronger than the word hate. It's like I abhor it. It's, it's deep down, like I want nothing to do with that. They did not want to come to worship. They did not want to come to the, to the tabernacle. Why? Because of what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. Now I have to draw some lessons for us today. And not just for us, but this is something which has been the situation of God's people, I would say, to some extent throughout all history. And that is this. Leadership in the house of God has caused many 
who have considered to go into ministry or be part of ministry, this ministry has fallen into disrepute because of bad leadership. I'm not trying to poke poke fingers at anyone, not particularly this church. I have no one in mind as I say this, but I'm reflecting on my own experience when I was a child in my home church. Not that my church was particularly bad, I don't think so, but growing up, I came to the age where why would any sane person want the responsibility that a pastor has? I mean, you... What sane person wants that? If you had told me I would be here years later, I would say, no way. No way. Absolutely not. Why? Because you hold a duty to God first and foremost, and that means that for the most part, not always, but many, many times, it means you will make many people unhappy. You will step on other people's toes, not because you want to step on other people's toes, but because the nature of of God's word is that it steps on people's toes because the whole call is your life is going in the wrong direction. Turn back and turn towards me. If anything, we should all say this is not what society really wants to hear right now. Oftentimes, we don't want to hear it in our own homes when our spouse corrects us, when whoever it may be. In the workplace, we don't like to hear that we're not doing something well, don't reprove me. And we don't understand that reproof to, to a great extent is a way of life. How does one get better if there isn't some kind of checks and balances and some, some kind of in as gentle as a way as possible and sometimes not so gentle when the gentle doesn't work for God trying to move us in the direction that will give us a life and give us happiness. So, Many, many young people do not want to be, and I'm not saying young people, sometimes it's older people as well, don't want to be part of ministry because they see what's going on or sometimes they see what's not going on. Whichever way, it doesn't matter. The, The devil has so many extremes. Another extreme might be that sometimes you have great leadership and everything is working well and the church is active and doing so much. Why should I get involved if everything is going well? Do you see the two extremes? In one, you don't want to get involved because you're like, I don't want that kind of responsibility and I don't want people not to like me for saying the things that I believe I should. So I don't want to get involved. The other one is everything is going fine. I don't need to get involved. And whichever one you think you're part of, hopefully not either of them, the bottom line is you're not involved. And Satan wins because your voice and your energy and your ideas are just collecting dust on the shelf and aren't being used to to spread the gospel. Uh, I had a moment last week. I went out to the beach with uh, some young people and uh, I asked someone there to to come and to bring uh, their instrument and we would have Vespers. And I was told while we were there, we had a beautiful Vespers at the beach with the young people. I was told there that in the car as they were driving, someone asked them, did you bring your instrument? And they said, yes, I did. And then they added, lest Pastor Andy bring a worse calamity upon me. And, and they told me this at, at the Vespers. And, you know, I had a laugh, gave him a bit of a hard time. Uh, and it was all fun and games until I drove home. And it hit me like a lightning bolt. That was me like 15 years ago. I was the person, you know, a lot of people when they meet you later in life, they think you were always that way. And it's not true. 
Many of us can testify to this, that we have changed through periods in our life where God has been working with us and we have made steps, we have made choices, whether for ill or for good, and God has taught us through those experiences and we are the people we are today, and no doubt God will teach us more as we live with him and as we walk with him god has more to teach us but i i don't remember being the kind of child that was like oh the church needs something me me pick me i, I want to do it i was the kind of person that i'd get home after i was asked to do something for church and i'd talk to my dad and say why did they have to ask me can they find no one else they have to ask me it's not something i relish now i wish i could say i was always willing Probably it'd be more accurate to say most of the time I was willing. At least I like to think that most of the time I was willing, so I'll stick with that. But I definitely wasn't all of the time, and I definitely didn't enjoy being up front. I told you stories of where I had to recite scripture up front, and I'd be crying in front of the whole church. I mean, that doesn't do wonders for you. But I'm so glad my parents persisted. And I'm not saying that everyone has to be the kind of person that likes to get up front and that has to be uh, good at public speaking. But I assure you, there was a time where I was horrible at public speaking. And I still have more to learn in public speaking. God works with us. God works with what we have. And what we're willing to give to him and what we're willing to use, he will increase. Remember that parable of the talents that he who has two will get four, he who has five will have ten. God will increase the talents that we have if we use them. But if we're too unwilling to get involved in any way, shape, or form, then what can God do? The talents that we have, he will give to someone else who is using them. At least that's how I understand the parable. Let's go to verse uh, 22. Eli here. Oh, let me mention one more thing here just before we move to verse 22, and that's this. At some point in our lives, we have to decide whether or not we will get serious with God and serious with the call he has given to the church, which is this great mission, the gospel commission, to go and share it in every part of the world, but most particularly for us personally to share it to our part of the world. My workplace, my family, my neighborhood. That's our immediate center where we can work, where we have influence. And it's good to go, you know, out of state and out of country internationally and do other things. That's good and that's important. And maybe we have ties to some of these countries where we grow and, and that's even better because you find often when you do international ministry, if you can speak just a few words in the language, they feel like you're their brother and sister already. Anyone who has done international uh, you know, mission work understands this point very well. You don't have to speak, if you speak it fluently, even better. But if you speak just a few words and you can say happy Sabbath and God bless you and I hope you have a nice day, in their language, oh man, you are like, wow, you're, you're almost one of us. Even though you know 10 words, you're almost one of us. It's a beautiful thing. But at what point, I had to come to this realization in my life as well. I used to think, I'm going to be serious with God when I have more time. Right? A lot of you are smiling because you know, you know what's coming. I abandoned this a few, more ye a few years ago when my father retired. Not that I wasn't serious with God before then, but I had made my commitment to God before that. But this notion that I'm going to have more time eventually, you know, when I'm done with high school, man, I'm going to have so much more time. And then you get to college and you're like, man, high school was nothing. What did I even do in high school? 
Then you finish college, you're like, oh, okay, you know, I'll have more time. Maybe when I get married, I'll have more time because I won't have to go to as many social things because I won't be looking for a wife, etc. Maybe when I have kids, I'm going to have more time. Maybe when I'm working full time, I'm going to have more time. I abandoned this year when my father retired just a few years ago. And, uh, you know, the months preceding the retirement, he had such joy in his face of, I can't wait to end and earn almost as much as as I did when, when I was working, but not have to go to work. He was so looking forward to it. And then retirement came and all of a sudden the phone started ringing a little bit more and there's, there's more that the church needs help on and, and we hear you're retired and you can give and sure. And, and then the sisters are saying, well, now you're retired. Can you, can you pick up the kids from school and can you bring them home and can you help them do their homework and can you practice violin with them and do music with them? And then the wife is, well, you're retired and there's more to do around the house and can you please do this and can you do this? And two, not even two weeks after my dad's like, I should have stayed working, <laughs> right? I mean, you, you know what's coming. Essentially, I realize there's never going to be a time where you can prioritize your life around how much time you have. You have to make the priority list first, and then you fit your time around that list. Let that sink in for a bit. Reflect on that this afternoon. And I could mention a few examples. I'll, I'll use one which I think is, is bare minimum. Obviously, being involved in a ministry of the church would be so great if you're not already if you are praise the lord keep moving forward and keep encouraging others to get involved maybe you don't like any of the ministries that are out there that's okay start your own gather talk to people one-on-one -on -one and say you know hey what do you think about this idea if no one else likes it maybe it's not a good idea there is such a thing as not having good ideas but there is such a thing as going and talking to your friends going and talking to other people and trying to stimulate some interest and seeing if there is interest out there and then getting people to help you and say, we can do this. If we join together, there is far more we can achieve together than if we have to do it all on our own. And uh, let me use the example of Sabbath school. I don't think this service struggles too much with that, though there may be some. But at what point do you decide, you know, is it after I finish after I get full-time work, after I have kids, I'm going to have more time to come to Sabbath school and be involved. When do I decide? And, and the reason I'm, I, I see this as such a minimal, minimal argument base for, for dedication to God, because what I'm noticing is we used to meet as a church a lot more than we do now. Now, typically, Wednesday evenings for prayer meeting, and even then, you know, but I'm not going to mention prayer meeting, except that I just did. But Sabbath school, and uh, you see Sabbath school, and you don't come to Sabbath school. Now it's like, I don't know if I would say the majority of the North, hopefully it's not the North, most of the North American division, the majority, will only come to the divine worship service. An hour and a half is all of the spiritual refreshing you get all week long. And you wonder why there might be problems in the home and why the kids aren't interested in learning about God. All they get is an hour and a half. Maybe. At what point do we decide, I'm tired, I have so much going on, but I want to show my dedication to God somehow. I need to start coming to these things minimally, and ideally I want to look out for a ministry that I can that I can get involved in. Maybe all I have is an hour a week. Maybe I don't have any time and I need to make an hour a week. But let's start with that minimal 
Where can I get involved? What can I do? Let's go to verse 22 here. Eli tries to correct his spoiled sons. And this is hugely surprising to me because all Eli does is talks to to them. Doesn't even talk with them because it doesn't seem from the biblical text that it's a conversation. Verse 22 of uh, chapter 2 says, Now Eli was very old. He heard the things that his sons uh, did to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he said, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from how many of the people? I mean, that, that's bad. This isn't like one or two people that are coming to Eli and saying, your sons are, like, what are they doing? This is, everyone is coming and complaining. He says, no, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Notice the argument that Eli is bringing out here. It's a very powerful one. He's saying, when you wrong another brother, another sister, there is hope that you can plead to God, that God will somehow bring the other person around. You can even use some other friends to intercede for you, to bring the relationship back together, to apologize. There is hope for that. But if you wrong God, who is the intercessor between you and God? Who is going to intercede for you? Now, we know that Jesus is that intercessor. And praise the Lord, many times when we have offended God, when we have sinned against God, we have an advocate who is with the Father in heaven, right? Amen, praise the Lord. He is able to forgive us. But he's raising this issue here with the fact that you aren't even sorry for what you're doing. Who is going to intercede for you? You don't want forgiveness and you're wronging God. No one is gonna be able to make that right unless you turn around and stop doing what you're doing. But he gives them no actual punishment or consequence we could say he doesn't say you've got till the end of the month to change after that you're out of the position there are other sons of Levi who will take your place but he doesn't do any of that so much so that I mean it's it's just amazing to me God comes remember he sends that that man of God to come and talk to Eli And essentially, this man of God, to sum up his whole message, says, you honor your sons more than you honor me. Eli was not innocent in what was going on. He was the leader. He should have corrected his sons long, long ago, but he didn't. And now we get to chapter 3, probably the most beautiful part here, at least with what I mentioned earlier, and it's that God starts to call Samuel. Samuel, Samuel. Now, of course... We read in the scripture reading, Samuel goes back to Eli how many times? Three times. And it's only on the third time that Eli realizes maybe God is trying to get through here. Shows you how close Eli must have been with God as well. That it it takes him this long. But finally he realizes and he tells Samuel, go back and when you hear it again, say, speak Lord for thy servant heareth." Now Samuel being very, very young, which we are told, goes back, he doesn't even remember all the words. He, he forgets the word Lord, right? Because when he replies, he says, speak, your servant hears. And God is kind. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't require him to, to memorize everything, but it's showing you how young Samuel was. And God answered Samuel and said, this is what I'm gonna do to the house of Eli after this. So much so that Samuel is terrified the next day to tell Eli what God told him. And Eli can see something's up with Samuel and tells Samuel, listen, tell me everything that the Lord has told you. You don't have to be afraid. 
And Samuel does and tells him everything. And Eli's response just about threw me off my chair when I read it, which was, let the Lord do what seems good to him. Even now, I'm trying to (laughs) take it in again. It's like, really? That's your response? Moses, what was Moses' great sin in the desert? What did he do that he wasn't supposed to do? He hit the rock, right? Twice. Instead of what? Speaking to the rock. Because of that, he wasn't to go into the land of promise. He wasn't to cross over uh, into the Jordan. And also because of that, he was to face death. The spirit of prophecy tells us if he had not committed that sin, he would have been translated to heaven alive without having seen death. But after he sinned and after God gave him the consequence, even though God preserved his leadership by still causing water to come out of the rock, even though it wasn't by the prescribed method which God gave, Moses keeps asking God, please let me go and see the land. Please let me go and see the land. Please let me go and see the land. So much so that God eventually has to tell him, don't speak to me of this anymore. Why did God have to say that? Does God not like persistence? Is God reluctant to forgive? I think the reason God did that was because he had to show that sin has consequences and he was afraid that if Moses, whom he loved so much, I mean, it's not like he left Moses to die for a very long time. We know from Jude, he came, he disputed over Satan, but it's as though Moses fell asleep and I'm guessing within minutes or hours, Jesus is there saying, time to get up Moses and go to heaven. It's not like it was years or centuries that he was letting Moses decay. He loved Moses. He wanted Moses to be with him. And he told him, stop asking me because there's a chance that I might give you what you ask for. And it's not going to be a good example to everyone else who follows. What about David and Bathsheba? God pronounced that the child that Bathsheba had would die. What does David do? Oh, let the Lord do what he seems fit. No, he fasted and he prayed. And when the child was born and the child was dead, then David stopped fasting, started eating, and everyone asked him, what's going on? He said, while the child was still alive, there was hope. And I still need to inquire of God. After God has pronounced the judgment, there's nothing more I can do then. What about Nineveh? God pronounces judgment on Nineveh. What what any of us would give to get Jonah's notes, right? His sermon notes. I mean, man. But he goes to Nineveh, he tells them destruction's coming in 40 days. They repent from the highest to the lowest in sackcloth and ashes. They turn their lives around. God withholds the destruction that he was going to give, at least to that generation, because of their turning back towards him. It's amazing. And yet, and yet Eli is here. Samuel has pronounced what God is going to do. He remembers what the man of God said early, and he says, this is of God. But he just resolves himself to the fact, let God do as he wills. No intercession, no is there something more, no Lord I have sinned and I have done a great wrong. There seems to be no repentance announced with with Eli's hearing of God's message. Except that he acknowledges that God is God and he can do as he wills. I mean, that's a revelation right there, right? That God can do as he wills. Let us not be so. Let us not be so. I want to end here with this stark contrast because our time is 
is at an end. And at least I got to chapter three. Um, is this notion that I love the picture of how Hannah named her child heard by God. I was heard by God. And when God calls Samuel, does Samuel answer the call of God? Notice, Hannah is the one crying out to God. She's the one asking for God to do something and God answered her. How many of us raised our hands just a little bit earlier saying, God is a God who answers prayers, amen. How often do we answer God? Are we as willing to answer God as he is to answer our prayers? If I look on my own life, I wish I could say that 10% of the time I answer when God calls. Probably less than that. And I need to work better. This is as much a sermon for me as it is for you. It's that constant striving of will self have the ascendancy or will self die? What is my duty to God? What can I do for him? He has done so much for me and answered so many of my prayers. When he asks me to say something to my neighbor, to my friend, to my coworker, to my family member, through tears, maybe in agony, through wrestling with God, maybe I need to say yes this one time and do it. And that will hopefully open the door to me saying yes the next time and the next time and that I will grow in constantly being able to hear God and to be able to answer if we could say indeed that God indeed prays. I'm not sure that I would go that far because I wouldn't say that God prays to anyone, but God has requests of us. Remember, Jesus tells the parable and he sees his disciples come back and they say how much they've been able to do for him, sharing the gospel message, telling people about the Messiah who is coming and being able to do all these miracles. Jesus says, behold, the harvests, they're all white and plentiful. Pray that, and if I could say this is the one prayer of God, that there would be more laborers to go out into the harvest. Won't you be an answer to that prayer in whatever way God is leading you to do it, which may be different than he's asking someone next to you to do it. But won't that be your prayer and won't that be my prayer? This is what I leave with you. Answer God's call. Let's stand as we sing 